0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. And today we're um, really excited to have Jess Stolman Rainey with us. And we'll get into why we're excited about that here in just a minute. But let me tell you a little bit about Jess first. So Jess is a researcher, trainer, and advocate serving as the Director of Program Development for Colorado's statewide crisis and peer support lines at Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners. She has focused her career on creating pathways to intersectional, justice-based, Emotional Support for Marginalized Communities. Jess centers her lived experience as an ex-patient and suicide attempt survivor in her work. Well, welcome, Jess.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, well, again, we're really excited to to have you here. And what really drew um, us to this is an article you wrote entitled, Hegemonic, Sanity, and Suicide. And did I say hegemonic correctly? You did, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's always nice when one does. <laughs> okay, well, I guess to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be uh, where you are today?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, I never know where to start with this <laughs> this yeah, kind of question, I, I think. But um, I... Um, I had some pretty interesting mental health experiences when I was really young and um, I have this awesome family. So growing up, being different was really pretty okay for me until I realized that the rest of the world didn't think that was so okay. And um, I ended up attempting suicide in high school and that was a really sort of pivotal moment for me because um, I ended up in this uh, sort of series of like hospitalizations and medication and all of this stuff that really made my life worse um, and um, really didn't prevent that feeling of being suicidal for me. Um, and uh, I eventually went to went to college and I studied women's studies in English at first, which is why some of my approach to suicide prevention looks really different than most of you suicidologists are um, in your approach. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I take that I take a perspective on suicide as um a social issue that's a, a, a consequence of injustice. And um, I kind of developed that view while I was involved with an ex-patient group in, um, in college and then have been working sort of within the mental health system to try and um, improve some things for people. And um, I guess some people are listening now because this article got a lot of attention. Um, so I'm excited to talk more about it.
0: Yes, it did get again it got our attention. And um well maybe just give us a little bit about the article for the four or five people in the world who haven't had a chance to <laughs> to read it.
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who didn't read it. But um so my uh my approach to the article is that I wanted to critique the idea that there are uh, good and bad suicide attempt survivors or good or bad people who attempt or who are suicidal. And um, so there's a way of being a suicide attempt survivor that socially is the dominant narrative that we see that's okay um, and that we you know, are willing to give people a platform to speak and share their experience. And that's if you're someone who attempts suicide, wakes up and is like, oh my gosh, I should have lived. I don't know what I was thinking. Everything I thought couldn't be solved before can be solved. All my problems have magically gone away. And then you comply with whatever medical treatment there's been that's recommended. And probably you're supposed to comply with that for like maybe the rest of your life, no matter what the consequences are. Um, You know, you have to be happy about your hospitalization. You have to Um, go on to be successful afterwards, and then it's okay to be a suicide attempt survivor. But if your experience with a suicide attempt is that you wake up or um, afterwards, your feeling is, wow, I couldn't even do that right, which is a pretty common experience that people have, then there's something deeply wrong with you. Um, And if you're that person, then your entire experience after that in your life is going to be pathologized and um, you're going to have punitive experiences um, so we have seen lots of examples of that uh, I think fatal attraction is one of the uh, the one that sticks out to me that's the one I wrote about in the article um, is that you know someone attempts suicide and they're doing it for attention and then um, you know they're, they're crazy and have to be controlled and because they're out of control they're harming everyone else in are Their path. So there's this um, real big investment in this narrative and people being um, submissive and compliant with mental health treatments that have actually been proven pretty ineffective. So, like, we know hospitalization increases people's risk for suicide, even if you're not put in the hospital for suicidal thoughts. Um, But we have culturally a lot invested in that kind of institution. So this narrative helps to preserve those institutions that are not working for the people who are actually in, inside of them. Um, and that's a, to me, that's a big problem. We have this entire industry of suicide prevention and we're asking for more money for it. We're recognizing that this is a serious public health issue but the people who have power in that institution are not willing to look at what they've done wrong um, and the abuses that have happened and how the things they've done haven't worked.
0: Okay, so it's almost like there's the, the right way to be a survivor and maybe the not-so-right way to, to be a survivor. What do we as a... Um, in the suicide prevention field, what do we get out of that? Uh, what do
1: we get out of that um, sort of dichotomy? Between... Yeah,
0: the dichotomy.
1: Yeah, well, so when something doesn't work, when the treatment that you give someone doesn't work, then we can blame them for it because they're doing it wrong, right? So if, um, you know, someone leaves hospitalization and they're not taking their meds because they have... Um, you know, adverse side effects from them, then we can say, well, it's not something wrong with the intervention, it's something wrong with the person. Um, And because this is so medicalized, this experience is so medicalized, um, then we can always, we can always blame that. If the patient isn't being compliant, if the patient isn't doing the right things, then they're not going to have the right outcomes. Um, So what we end up studying a lot is people who are completely compliant with whatever those interventions are and that sets up the expectation that that means that that's that needs to be the standard Um, so we've invested a whole lot in this we've built whole institutions around this idea of um you know hospitalization being um, a good answer medication being a good answer even though the cdc just told us that um less than half of people who uh die by suicide have a psychiatric diagnosis so so, maybe medication's not the answer, um, but we're still so invested in it. Like, everything in suicide prevention is built on this medical model. So, as people who work in suicide prevention, we have a whole lot to lose if we change the way that we're doing things, like our careers, um, for example. <laughs> oh, just that. <laughs> We're uh, like, yeah, if we decided to do things differently, where do you go to work? Um, who's going to fund it? Uh, because we've been talking about this as uh, a mental health issue and not as a social issue for so long. And, and a mental health issue in a way where it's a medical issue. We, we've medicalized it to the degree that um, that's sort of the only space
0: mm-hmm.
1: to, to be funded or get a job. And so it's this whole trap.
0: Right. Yeah, so the idea that... Um, so if we medicalize it, then a person is either sick mm-hmm. or well. Right. The person who attempts suicide um, lives through that, um, was once sick, but now they can be well. Right. Um, but reading the paper and, you know, my own experience being well is not doesn't happen all the time
1: right um it doesn't happen all the time and like whose goal is that and what does well mean and who gets to define it all of that is really complicated so um, so we're really invested in people behaving in a certain way and living their lives in a certain way um uh, and so that's where the piece of sanism comes into play right so um, it is okay to be like, quote unquote, mentally ill, as long as you're managing your illness. Um, but if you make a choice and you say, well, so this is who I am and I'm going to live this way. If you have, um, what people, people like me call mad pride, if you're going to live as someone who is not sane, um, who is not well, then, then, then you have to be Ill and you need to be managed and you're a risk. And so, um, yeah, so that's all complicated. And um, culturally, we're invested in sanism because it's a, a means of social control for people, right? So we want people to be predictable and um, engage in the world in the way that we've constructed it. But the way we've constructed the world doesn't have space for everyone in it. Um, and so there's, I think there's strong connections between um, disability rights uh, movements and some of this, these concepts so um, if a person is in a wheelchair and they aren't able to access something um, it's not that the person. there's an issue with the person and there's an issue with the building that doesn't allow them access right so if people have these experiences of extreme states or hearing voices or thinking about suicide or whatever it is uh, and there's not space in the world for them, there is something wrong with the world we've created, not with the person who's having that experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And the, you talk about sanism, and you also talked about mad pride. But mm-hmm. well, let's uh, go a little deeper into this idea of sanism. Yeah. How would you describe that to help help our audience understand yeah. it a little bit?
1: Um, so sanism is a term that describes, uh, the way socially we preserve, um, sanity or the experience of being well or mentally healthy or however you might describe that as, um, the good or the right standard that everything should be living, living up to and measuring up to. Um, and then all of the institutions that align with that idea, uh, marginalize the people who don't have that experience in their life. Um, so hospitals might be some of those institutions, but this happens in, um, education. It happens in family systems and communities. Um, you know, when you are downtown in Denver and people are, who are experiencing homelessness are also experiencing extreme states, you hear people, um, wanting them to be managed, like wanting to call the police uh, So law enforcement is involved, wanting to, um, differentiate themselves from, from those people, like there's something different about me than them, um, and that's all rooted in Sanism
0: mm-hmm. so it's it, it reminds me of, of uh, the character or people younger than me may not get, <laughs> but Frank Burns on the, the sitcom MASH once said, well it's okay for everyone to be different as long as everyone does it the same way, <laughs> right, yeah <laughs> um, and,
1: yeah, there's a and passing like passing as sane, which is something I do really well, mm-hmm. um, which is probably why I get to be here. Like <laughs> honestly, uh, is, is really important in maintaining your safety and security in the world. Um, you know, like if you are not choosing to pass a sane or not able to pass a sane, um, then it, it can be really hard to get around. It can be hard to have a job, maintain, um, a home, things like that, based on the systems that we've constructed. And um, I think because of that, we have this whole other system where you have to be like disabled and you have to say that you have an illness and something is wrong with you to get support to live in the world that wasn't made for you. So you have to say, something's wrong with me, not the world, thanks. Now can I have support to get through in the world that you created that I'm not allowed in? So it's a big
0: So yeah, almost like this this weird trap of that you're either going to be sane, or and there's not this middle ground. You've got to be disabled, right? You can't you can't have you can't have it both ways, right? You know, we're not going to let you do that, right? And then if
1: you're not sane then you have no credibility. And so as a witness in your own experiences, um, you have no credibility. So if you say, this is what I'm experiencing, the world doesn't have to believe you. Mm -hmm. Um, As soon as you have been psychiatrically labeled, you become an incredible witness in your own experience. Um, and, And that's when other people get to step in and make decisions for you. And I think that's one of the most insidious and awful experiences that people have. And because we've equated suicide and, um, suicide attempts with illness, even though the, so we know that's not legitimate, but that's a sort of a separate thing. But because we've done that, um, then as soon as you have those thoughts, which might be really rational, I think suicide can be a really rational idea when your experience is really, really terrible because it is, you know, it is a legitimate way to end some of your suffering. And, um... Because as soon as you think about suicide or talk about suicide, you become not a credible witness, then everything you say about your experience doesn't have to be considered true. And um, we can take all of these measures to remove you from your home or your community. You can lose your job. um, You know, all kinds of consequences.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. At times I've been struck by, um, again, these folks caught on the margins, Mm -hmm. um, who can't get services because they're not disabled enough, Mm -hmm. um, but they're not well enough or they're not, what to say, able Mm -hmm. enough or, and I, and I think I'm butchering the, Mm -hmm. the words there, um, but do you have any comment on that? Yeah.
1: I think because we've created all these binaries, um, of like sick and well, um, or able and disabled, which is, you know, we made those up. Those are things we completely made up. And And they change. Yeah. And we built huge amounts of law and things and institutions on them, but we made them up because we've created that dichotomy and it's not real. There are people who are in the middle somewhere and, um, I, oftentimes I think they can be harmed, um. More than someone who might be on some of those extreme ends, because uh, you're not you're not sick enough to get services, right? Uh, or you're not well enough to uh, sort of live in the way that success is defined um, by our culture. So, um, so that's a really painful place to be, and um, you know, feeling like you can't get what you need to survive, uh, either because you're not able. Um, to work and live in the way that the world wants you to and you aren't sick enough to get services uh, sort of seems like a recipe for suicide to me. So, and then you would be even further disadvantaged because of the stigma surrounding suicide. Yeah. Yeah. It's a trap.
0: It really is. It's uh, the the old damned if you do and damned if you don't type of, of catch 22 for folks. Um, So that's, where we are Mm -hmm. um and i'm just going to to take a moment and just think uh, how crazy this is and i hope that maybe you can tell us where we should be going from here because (laughs) right now i'm just a little a a little lost
1: yeah so i think that's hard um uh, because like dismantling systems of oppression is not an overnight task so i think the the long-term goal for me um, is that we are creating spaces where people can either choose to get traditional mental health treatment or um, live as mad. That that's that's acceptable, not just acceptable, but uh, is something that's common that people are able to do uh, and um, and not be punished for. That's the long-term goal. I think between here and there, there's a there's a lot. Um, so I think investing in, um, taking away some of the laws or interventions that we know don't work is a good place to start. Uh, so to me, uh, forced treatment is unacceptable. It's, it's been considered a human rights violation by the United Nations. We still practice it. Uh, and it's been for a long time since 2013, I think, um, So starting with things like forced hospitalization and really finding uh, alternatives to that that allow for people to have choice and agency is a a really good place to start. Um, I think um, looking at disability law would be a really good place to start. Um, And then when we start thinking about suicide prevention, um, we could listen to people who have lived experience and listen to them From the beginning, so we shouldn't be, the people who fund research should not be making decisions about research without people with lived experience guiding that conversation. The people who do research shouldn't be allowed to do that ethically without including people with lived experience from the development of the questions and the hypotheses all the way through the implementation of whatever they might be doing. Um, So it's not just like, listen, give people a voice at the table. It's that people with this experience are the most credible witnesses, are the people with the most information, and they ought to be at the center of our work when we think about what suicide prevention looks like. Um, So personally, I don't really believe in suicide prevention as a concept because I think it fosters this idea of um, interventions that take people's rights away. So to me, we should be looking at suicide as a social issue and creating a world where people don't want to kill themselves instead of finding ways to manage people who are already in that place.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that. Um, you talked about was the idea of um, that, in some ways, uh, suicide could be a, uh, a rational response to the pain that a person is suffering, and especially uh, societal pain, or pain that's coming to us mm-hmm. from our society. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah.
1: So uh, there are lots of ways that people, are, that people experience pain because of the culture that we've created. So when it comes to mental health specifically, um, having a psychiatric diagnosis or having contact with the mental health system um, can make someone sort of be treated like an outcast. Uh, people are afraid of you um you know i when i attempted suicide i attempted at school in high school and it was um not long after columbine happened and uh i lived in colorado and um you know the the school resource officer put me in handcuffs it's not the first or or it, well it was the first but it's not the last time i was in handcuffs because of um sort of my mental health experiences and so for people to see that made people think that I was violent and um, criminal and maybe was gonna hurt them. And so then uh, that sort of increased those, those feelings of isolation and burdensomeness and fear. Um, I think systemic racism causes people pretty significant pain. Um, sexism causes significant pain. So anything socially that causes you to be different or other um, is going to create those experiences. people Uh, so socially we create the conditions that bring about this kind of life-ending pain for people and then when they feel like maybe ending their life is a good way to deal with that they're like further marginalized and experience more pain because of it
0: yeah you're just heaping it on on you especially since we know that most attempts do not lead to death. So we're talking about really um, the majority of the folks that we work with, that we see, that we're trying to um, live with, fall into that category. Yeah. I, your your experience of being led away in handcuffs for somebody who's in pain mm-hmm. uh, just strikes me as... as That society is crazy. Our society is crazy in that case.
1: Well, and you don't even have to be in pain to be Mm -hmm. put in handcuffs. So my most recent experience in handcuffs was in May. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to a mental health provider for the first time in like a long, long time. Um, And so because of the diagnosis I have, because of my experience hearing voices, particularly because I hear voices that tell me to kill myself um, and sometimes other people, which does not mean you have to do that or that I'm thinking about that. But uh, because I have that experience, going to medical providers is really scary for me. There's always a threat of forced treatment. Always, always. So I have these extensive plans for how to deal with that. Um, Like who is going to know when I'm there and when I leave and uh, what do they do if something goes wrong? All of that is sort of built in. So I knew that this was a possibility. I went to this provider, they looked at my intake paperwork, and I was honest on it, and I don't know why, because I, I should know better. I should know that you need to lie to your providers to get good treatment, but I did <laughs> 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 um, In my experience, I've had to lie to providers mm-hmm. to get good treatment to yeah. not end up in handcuffs. And I didn't lie, and I had this intern, provider and I saw him reach under the desk and hit the button. And I was like, did you just call the cops? And he got, got really uncomfortable. And then, so my reaction to that was to be really angry. So I stood up and I yelled at him and then I was combative, right? So being, being upset that I was going to be put in handcuffs when a provider didn't even see me, just looked at my paperwork uh, means that I'm combative and I'm not compliant so the police came they put me in handcuffs they took me to a hospital and I happened to know the director of the hospital that I went to and that's the only reason that I wasn't an inpatient in May mm-hmm. and I'm fine like I don't take medication and I have experiences that other people don't but I'm fine like I uh, and even if I wasn't fine That wasn't going to help me. It hasn't so far. Every time Mm -hmm. that's happened to me, it hasn't helped so far. So, uh, you know, that that threat is always there for people who have these experiences. And then you have to be able to pass as well enough to be able to stay out of institutions or jail. Because, you know, I'm white, so I'm really lucky that that's where I went instead of jail. uh, Because people of color go to jail instead a lot. And... um, like that whole system is broken
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and not the people who are having these reactions to it. It's the system that's broken.
0: I'm curious um, about, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it a mixed bag?
1: I think it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, I there are spaces where um, I can surround myself with people where I think it's, not just getting better, but like things are really, really getting better. And, um, you know, I think my work is one of those places. I think the work that we do at Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners is really, really amazing. Um, you know, they put, they put someone who, um, has the experiences I do in charge of like training all the employees and things like that. So they've really put trust, um, trust in people with lived experience. There's a space for them to, for people with lived experience to work, and uh, you know they're not treated as like second, secondary or second class to the people who are doing clinical services um, for peer support. So there are places where it feels really like things are okay, but then also like I went to that provider and ended up in handcuffs, and, you know,
0: mm-hmm. all
1: within the last year. So, um, so I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I think we've made a lot more movement around other social justice issues. Uh, and this is one that's sort of not even like showing up mm-hmm. on people's radar um, as, a, as a justice issue. It shows up on people's radar as like a problem um, and something that needs to be addressed um, and something we want to blame on somebody, uh, but not not really as something that we should... Be concerned, concerned about from justice perspectives.
0: When well, we talk about um, marginalized populations. You're right. This as a group um, it's certainly not garnered the attention or the empathy yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it is because, like, if you're not, if if you're visibly not sane, right, then. That's something that's wrong with you. Like you're not engaging in treatment, you're not compliant, you're not submissive, you're not participating. Mm-hmm. It's not. Oh, there's no space for you. It's that mm-hmm. that you're doing something wrong, right? So there's
0: not a lot of empathy for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it also one of the things that you touched on was the lived experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is hardening uh is that we even say lived experience, yeah, I mean there's a lot going on there five years ago, from five years ago to today, there seems to be um quite a change, yeah, can you tell us?
1: Yeah, I feel like we're in a moment that's really important. Just, I'm not sure I can put my finger on what it is, but there's something that feels really powerful about this movement and sort of the movement, the lived experience movement. Um, where you know, I've been going to like our the National Suicidology Conference, AAS um, for a long time, and it was almost like overnight, all of a sudden there were spaces in the program for people with lived experience. There's uh, a track for that. Um, There seems to be some media attention, giving people with lived experience opportunities to share their story and also comment on. um, So not just share their stories, but comment on things that are happening um, and maybe be perceived as like the experts um, instead of, you know, feeling the need to have uh, a doctor explain what's going on. You can talk to the people who have experienced it. That's all really new, um, and not something that I would have expected. Um, you know, so about 15 years ago, I had a a therapist who told me that I should get used to this idea that my life, um, was not going to be what I thought it was and that I was probably going to have to live with my parents forever. And, um wouldn't be able to have a job, couldn't go to college, like, my life was going to be different than I thought. Um, and I'm sure that conversation still happens a lot today, but I certainly don't hear about it as much as I feel like I used to, and that was not that long ago. I mean, it felt, it feels like a long time ago to me, but, um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not, it's not that long ago. So, um, I wouldn't have ever thought that someone. I would have never thought that you would interview me about this. <laughs> like for example, so so something is changing, and I can feel it. Um, it feels like there's even just space for critique to happen. Um, before that, I don't think there was even space to critique this right. stuff. Mm-hmm. Have a voice about it.
0: Yeah, I wanted to circle back a little bit to your work um, as a trainer uh, with Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners. And I'm just wondering how your lived experience, how you incorporate that in into that work. Yeah. So um,
1: one of the things that's so great about that organization and some things about the crisis system in Colorado in general is that the intent of the crisis system was to be an emergency department diversion program. So because of that, uh, there's a goal of implementing the least restrictive interventions for people. That is not the case at all in all crisis systems or all crisis centers. So I think there's that makes uh, this place in particular a really great spot for lived experience to be co-located and working with a clinical experience. Um, so, so that made it a really good space for it. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed in um, having someone with lived experience be the person that's, that's doing training, that's um, being involved in some of the bigger decisions in the organization, is that we can really look at um, alternatives to uh, traditional mental health options for people. Um, there's a lot more willingness um, of people on the clinical team to be more creative about what interventions might work for someone. Um, they have the opportunity to, you know, talk with people with lived experience and think about, you know, what does it really mean for someone to be at imminent risk? And what does it mean for a plan to be good? And, and because they're co-located with peers, the clinicians are co-located with peers, um, they find us to be more credible and they find the callers to be more credible. Uh, I think so. I don't know that for sure, but that's my been my experience. So there's more trust, um, and I think that that trust is the really the place where lives are being saved um, in the organization. Um, and we have this opportunity to sort of move people back and forth between peer support and maybe a clinical intervention when it makes sense. And so the thing that comes to mind for me about that is that we had this caller who had had really intense, really, really negative experiences with police following a sexual assault and um, Had 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 a welfare check done on her before uh, Because of her so she was thinking about suicide as a result of a sexual assault she experienced um, so When someone found out about her suicidal thoughts, they sent a welfare check so when she called in to um, the crisis line side of our organization Um, it was really, really challenging for her to work with someone who, when she knew there was always this threat of coercion, there was always a threat that the welfare check might happen. So after working with her for quite a while, a clinician asked if, um, they could transfer her to the peer support line, um, to maybe try something new. And so we were able to help her, you know, get through that night and, um, really get connected to resources that were more effective for her on the peer side because we didn't have that threat. Uh, so really having those services enmeshed made it so someone on the crisis line side who might not normally even think about sending someone for peer support because they're really high you know, high risk, um, putting that in quotes, <laughs> high risk. Um, normally we think, I think culturally, that a clinician needs to handle that. But because there's this, um, this trust in the organization, I think, you know, in some ways, the trust they put in me to be training people and then also the trust they put in the team of peers to be um, with people in that moment of crisis, we were able to really provide a better service for that person. Um, Because I think if she had stayed on the the clinical side, she she would have ended up having some pretty restrictive interventions that she really didn't want.
0: I guess I didn't realize... Um, and maybe I want to bring this out for the for the audience that this crisis center is really different than than many and I I think of some crisis centers who count how many saves they've had Mm -hmm. um, which seems synonymous if I understand correctly with how many times you've been able to send the police out and save somebody but The Rocky Mountain sounds, uh, takes a different approach. Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so our approach is to find a solution that for people, um, to make a plan with people that will involve um, the lowest level of intervention possible for them, Um, for them to feel like comfortable and safe with what's going on. Uh, For some people, that could mean hospitalization if that's something. That they're, um, you know, they're considering. Uh, but our goal is to not be calling police. Um, you know, I think crisis centers should be embarrassed about the number of welfare checks that they're calling. That's me. But um, you know, I think that that is not a good intervention. That doesn't have good outcomes. So you shouldn't be proud of that. You should be proud of all the people that you were able to talk to who didn't end up needing that service. Uh, that's the numbers we should be reporting on and uh, at Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners that's sort of where our values are.
0: A very different model at times. How is Rocky Mountain uh, Crisis Partners um, unique? You know in the large scheme of crisis centers um, are there these two different models? Are there what's up?
1: Yeah I think um, it really it really really varies. Um, hotline work sort of evolved out of the lost survivor movement um, so it was people who had lost someone to suicide who developed hotlines originally um, and I think there's because of that because that's the population that developed them um, one of the things that people wanted was to be able to save the loved ones they had lost at any cost and so I think that that model of like we will send police, we're going to do everything we have to to keep you alive instead of we're going to do everything we have to to find something that makes you want to live um, or, or maybe an alternative to that even. Um, that comes directly from other people's lived experience, right? But but not the experience of the people on the phone. Mm-hmm. So, so I see some crisis centers that are, you know, much more aligned with the way that we do work and some who are really different.
0: Yeah, yeah, so... Am I right in thinking that sometimes it's a difference between we're going to keep you alive and what you just said there, we're going to find what reasons for you to want to stay alive? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. I see one, I can see how the medical model is a keep and the anti-sanist is the (laughs) want. Yeah. And,
1: and I think, you know, this idea of like, we don't have to take suicide off the table for people. Um, we can just hopefully help people think of more options. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think when there are more options, a lot of people choose those. Um, and, and some people might not. And that, you know, maybe that's a choice that's okay for them to make.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What wanted to also talk just a little bit about other places other worlds other mm-hmm. um, really just actually just other cultures are there cultures that um, have done this another way
1: mm-hmm. yeah so there's a, there are a lot of um, indigenous communities that have uh, really valued people who have experiences that are um, different, so experiencing extreme states or big emotions or um, hearing voices, having visions, um, you know, in some cultures uh, that having those experiences um, made you uh, a spiritual or religious figure in the community um, and some it was just acceptable uh, as, a, as a way that some people are um, and uh, colonization Really affected that pretty significantly. A lot of the um, things that happened during colonization eliminated those um, those spaces for people. Um, but it's it's been pretty common in Indigenous communities for there to be value placed on having different experiences of the world. Uh, there's a really lovely documentary actually about that called Crazy Wise that I highly recommend to people.
0: So one of the questions that that we often ask our our guest, um, lots of times we're working with researchers and they've done something and studied something and we ask them, well, what can the clinician take from your research? And I want to use that same question, um, but twist it a little just a bit. What can clinicians learn about, you know, from the things that you've told us, what could, a clinician take away from this? What would you want a clinician to take away from this?
1: I think, um, you know, our system of diagnosis is all set up to find something that's broken that needs to be fixed. So if clinicians can take a step back from that, if clinicians can take a step back from um, just the idea of like hunting for something that's broken that needs to be fixed in someone or um, assessment and, you know, be with a person really be with a person in the moment and find out what it is that they're hoping to get out of this. Um, and then use that as the jumping off place for whatever, whatever interventions make sense, um, or whatever things they want to talk about make sense so that, um, they're sharing power with the people who are coming to them for support and not being sort of a, a gatekeeper of information and skills and, you know, filtering through that and deciding what's most appropriate for people like really spending the time to uh, value what that client values um, and, and not go in making the assumption that there is something that has to change about them, but that you know, they might be just trying to adjust to or adapt to a world that wasn't set up for them or wasn't built for them.
0: mm mm-hmm. right, right. The, um, I think we generally have called that empathy,
1: which is, like, strangely lacking in mental health. Um, Martin Luther King talked about people being uh, creatively maladjusted. Uh Um, Is that a term you've heard before? (laughs) Uh, I I think a lot of people have heard it, and I think that's um, many people's experience with, um, who have experienced mental health challenges or um, mental differences. Um, They have had to adapt to a world that wasn't built for them, and then you go to therapy and you get more of like you need to fix yourself if we could go to therapy and someone said yeah this does suck the world wasn't set up for you and while we can't change the whole world today how do we make it a more livable space for you that would be a totally different thing Mm -hmm. and probably have some better outcomes
0: right yeah yeah well i really want to thank you for taking the time to to join us today uh, I know we've bounced a lot of different places um, but I like that I like that that um, that we created the space for that. Is it, in closing anything you'd like to say
1: um, I think I would just say that um, I want people to listen to each other and respect people's views as credible and uh, that's not a big task that's not a big undertaking we can all do that
0: Mm-hmm. listen and respect other people's views yes. as credible and true for them yeah. yeah that's a good thing well that's going to wrap it up for us today on uh, the Rocky Mountain Short Takes for Suicide Prevention Podcast and I really want to thank you Jess for coming in and um, visiting with us today Uh, Folks, if you like what you hear on this podcast, it really helps if you could give it a a rating. Um, That way other people can uh, find it easier when they do a search for uh, podcasts on suicide prevention. And if you have any ideas, any comments, any questions for us, feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. We'll take the time to listen and um, you know, hear what you're, what you're saying and respond to you as a credible source. Okay, that's going to be it for today. Um, take care, everyone. Bye.